Amen. Thank you, brother. All right. It's good to be with you again. Good to see everybody here. Welcome this afternoon. So we're going to continue our study of, of Christ's intercessory work and particularly his instructional prayer in Matthew 6. Lord willing, we're going to finish today um, our, our petitions for our daily needs. And first I want to read to you in light of prayer and, and, and lo- looking at the scriptures themselves for prayer, Psalm 145, and I'll just read this to you. It's David's prayer extolled. The Lord is extolled for his goodness here. David says, I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Let's pray for our study today. Gracious Father, thank you for your great providence in in this time, this place, this building. Father, the very comforts that we enjoy in these chairs, these seats, and the air conditioning. Lord, just the wonders of your grace that surround us, your provision in every way, Lord. It is because you know us so well, you know us so intimately, and I pray, Father, that today in this time of of Christ's instruction to us and how we are to pray to you, Father, that it would not just be merely truth, but, Father, truth that we can take to our closets and and intercede and, and fellowship and commune with you, Lord, that we might grow in your grace, grow in our knowledge and our experience of you, Father, and to grow in your graces each day that we may be true, faithful disciples and ambassadors of Christ our King. And that we may truly experience what you have given us, and that is eternal life in knowing you. So, Father, bless this time, I pray. Bless our ears to hear, our hearts to receive. Bless my voice, Lord, and and all that you have prepared in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've looked at the first and, and foremost set of these six petitions Um, The first three being, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's it's in this first section of these first three petitions that we see this this overarching purpose, um, this aim in, in Christ's instruction to us, and that is the glory of God. Amen. His exaltation, his glory in all things, the hallowing of his name, that his kingdom would come in its already salvific work, its sanctifying work in our lives, its salvific work in those that don't know Christ, who are outside of Christ, and for that eschatological kingdom that we hope for and anticipate with joy, but also his will being done in us each day in our lives, to to know his will to know his ways, how his mind thinks that he's revealed to us in his scripture, and that it would be done on the earth, in our lives, in his church, as it is done in heaven with great joy, with great fulfillment, with great power enabled by the Holy Spirit, but that his will, his work in us also is his word becoming 
that transformative power within our hearts to change us into the likeness of Christ because we are after our, the likeness of him to imitate him in all that we do, that he would receive the glory of all we do. So from the confessions that I know many of you know, what is the chief end of man? And how does this relate to our prayer life? Amen. Recognizing him as our provider, as that, that we looked at last time, that fatherhood of God, that great care that he gives us. Amen. Looking at him and his sovereignty, his redemptive purposes, all of these are, are, should shape and impact our, our prayer life. But let me ask you this. Is, is truth of Scripture enough? Is it necessary? Yes. Is it enough for us? Is to know truth and to have truth enough for us from the Word of God? Peggy's been hearing me preach this all week. That's right. You're correct. Everything that Christ has given us in the Scripture, Him being the Word of God, is infallible. It's perfect. It's complete. It's precious. It's necessary for us. But even in this seemingly simple instruction to us, these very brief statements that Christ has given us, what he's given us a glimpse into here, and it brings us to what Lord willing we'll start covering next week, I, I sincerely ask you pray for me as we get into John 17. Just this first verse, listen to this. Verse 1, Jesus spoke these things. He has been speaking from chapter 13 through 16, giving doctrinal truth, instruction, telling him what, telling the disciples what was yet to come, what would happen, how he would be handed over to men, lifted up, crucified, but resurrected, and all the ramifications of that. And then he says what he does, lifting up his eyes to heaven, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The doctrinal truth, yes, is absolutely necessary, but it needs to be coupled with this intercessory reality in our lives by the Spirit of God. Christ prayed continuously to his Father, did he not? And was he not, from what we've studied previous weeks, was he not empowered daily, momentarily, by the very Holy Spirit of God? This is what he was was after in showing us here. Because we know from Scripture, unless the Lord builds the house, what do we do if we just have a bunch of construction materials around? We talked about this in small group. We just had a foundation, a bunch of you know, wood, lumber, nails, stuff around. What good would it be? Unless the Spirit, unless the work is done in that intercessory work. Yes, brother. We need our intercessory work with Christ, with his word. Just as he taught, just as he was the word of God, he prayed. He he trusted and needed that. Remember we looked at he needed to pray each day because of his humanity. In, In so much greater measure do we 
to trust in that intercessor we work to bring the truths of doctrine to reality in our heart. And that is in that communal prayer with the Father through the Spirit that brings those things to reality. If we just have those truths up here for a knowledge sake and for a sake of arguing with somebody, they're of no value unless the Spirit brings them to reality. And that's where we see Christ in his intercession spending the time with the Father in private, intimate prayer. These realities, that will of God, that work of doctrine that he was to do to carry out, which we're to do and carry out. You know, we're to live out the word of God, not just hold it in our heads, right? Yeah. Yes, yes. And in truth. Right. Amen. Right, right. And we 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 wrestle with those truths. We bring them to the Father. We we gain that understanding as we go to Him by the Spirit in our meditation of the word, in our, in our study of the word, but in our prayer going to the Father. For it is the Spirit who gives us that illumination, who gives us that understanding, who makes the application in us. Right? Amen. So we, in Christ's life and his humanity, we see this full dependence upon the Father daily and the Spirit of God. We see this in his prayer life. And, and just looking at this and, and contemplating this, how Christ prayed, how intimate he was each day. What does that say about our lives, how they should be as far as the time we spend in prayer, the priority we give to prayer, the importance? We, we, we know John fifteen five, where Christ says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me, what is abiding in him except communing, except praying except coming to know him not just in a knowledge based doctrinal base but in that intimate relationship with him to know his ways to know his love to know his provision and and in in humility seeking his glory his work in all of our lives to transform us Amen. Yeah, Philippians. He who began that good work in you will continue it until that day of Christ Jesus. And that this is this is to be the very real aspect of that is is intercessory prayer for ourselves and for one another. We're going to look at these today for ourselves. But we typically, I know I do. I mean, there's there's days I get up and think, okay, I've got it. I can handle it. You know, thank you, Lord. Appreciate your blessings and your grace, and I thank you for your mercy and. Off I go, you know, and there's not a, a, a contrite, humble dependence that, Father, without you, apart from you, you know, John fifteen five continues, apart from Christ, we, we can't do nothing. We, we may make, we may accomplish a lot of things, but we cannot do anything as far as our abiding with him and knowing him when we take off and just run on our own. So, Jesus Christ being thoroughly perfect, yet in his humanity he submitted himself willingly to the Father. He sought the Father and relied on him fully. 
and revealed to us this example, this testimony of continual, constant, Father-glorifying prayer. And when we talk about being conformed into the image of Christ, of of imitating him, to be more Christ-like, this is one very real clear aspect that we see in Christ, that he was a dependent, prayerful son of God. And likewise, as we are disciples, as his children too, we need to be prayerfully dependent on the Father. You know, this, this Paul carries this over in the same way in 1 Corinthians 2 about preaching, uh, how the great dependence upon the Word of God, the Spirit of God, but to pray over these matters, to be in relationship to God, to know Him and His, his mind and His thinking as we counsel, as we preach and instruct and teach. So this is to be our, our posture, is to come humbly, to come with a contrite heart before the Father, recognizing our dependence on him. And, and in this attitude, we can come to him and make our personal request, which we'll get into here in just a second. But this is a great privilege to us. You know, as we looked at the fatherhood of God, how he welcomes us to come to him, how he loves to delight in us, how he looks on us as his, his pure, already spotless bride, not yet glorified, obviously, but he looks upon us with that great love and, and how his, you know, from Christ's perspective, how his prayers were all in the pursuit of God's help and his glory throughout his life, his purpose here. And I know many, probably many of you know this McShane quote. You know, he says that a man is what he is on his knees before God and nothing more. You know, it's, it's the most revealing thing about a person is not the amount of doctrine they know, but what what does their prayer life look like, who they are before God in their closet. So any thoughts, questions so far? We're going to hit verse 11 now. So verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. We stop, just think for a moment, go all the way back to Genesis 1. Looking at the order of, of God's creation in the six days, you know, just real quickly. Let there be light. He separated the darkness, calling it night, from the light, calling it day. He set the expanse of the waters above from the waters below. He withdrew the waters to create the land. From the land, he created these plants and established the stars, the sun, the moon to to propagate to promote through through what he's created in photosynthesis all the botanical you know miracles all the biological he created the fish the birds the living creatures animals of every kind then he created man and woman if you look at that he created everything necessary for his final creation to enjoy to provide to sustain for them yes we know what happened but Look at his provision, how thoughtful he was, how careful he was, how intricate he was in knowing exactly what his creation would need. And that just shows his, his detailed care here. And in the, these last three petitions are, are focused on our human needs. But this first one is a very fundamental request that we are all in need of. That's why it says, give us as the body of Christ, as his righteous ones. Give us this day our daily bread. And this is probably not 
a very common prayer, if we're honest with one another. How often do we really pray, Lord, give us this day our, our food. Our refrigerators are full. Our cupboards are full. Kroger, Walmart, Tom Thumb, right down the road. It's click of a button. You know, we can pretty much get anything we, we ask or need. But these first two words in his instruction just, just speak of supplication, of of putting forth the reality of our dependence before the Father. It, it is almost a, it is like a confession, petition. That, Father, I recognize you've created all things, and I ask that you would give us this day what we need. Any thoughts? I mean, this is what David prayed in, in Psalm 37 in, in full trust of the Lord that in, in his delight in him, he still depended on him daily for everything he needed and what he's promised and what he's granted us. And yeah. You're on the next point. We're going right there, brother. Yeah, <laughs> so that's good. But even, even when, when we have given, really given our all to the Father, as we talked about or heard from, from Brother Brian in Romans 12, as a living sacrifice, and, and have sacrificed all to follow the Lord, what do we hear Christ telling Peter in, in Luke 18? That, you know, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children who will not receive in this life and the life to come, everything they need, all that we will need. You know, that promise of the Father is right there. But praying in this mindset, give us this day, that's actually translated daily. Give us daily. And it's, it has, there's a difficulty in this translation, actually. It means that if you were to pray this in the morning, it means for the coming day. If you were to pray it at night, it means for the next day. That's kind of what that that Greek word means there. So give us in in the coming day what is needed for us, Father. You know, you know best, and and he's given us 24 hours to to live in each day, thankfully. We don't have a whole week to be concerned about. But it's in this daily, this next day that approaches to ask for these things. Because think about it, Jesus' time from from some of the parables we even read, most people were only paid a daily wage. They worked that day, they got their, their wage. So if they were sick, there's a real potential they'd go without being able to have any food or buy any food or have anything. And also to look at this from an, from an agricultural perspective today, there's only about 15 to 20% of the total land mass that's used for crops. And I know there, right now there's a lot of hydroponics and stuff going on, but on the land mass, created land mass, there's only about 15 to 20% used for agriculture use, and that's only half of the year at a time. What if God allowed a calamity to occur? Where would we be? You know, I think this prayer would come to the forefront very quick, as, as we know from brothers and sisters in other countries, this, this is truly a daily prayer that, Lord, you know our needs today, and you, you're the only one that can provide it because I have no money, no job, and I don't have a Walmart on the corner to go shopping. So we trust in you, 
And brothers and sisters, I can tell God's faithfulness is is true. I mean, his provision is so timely. Um, but praise God for that. So we, we live in a very fragile world. You know, I think there should be not only a prayer for ourselves, but a reminder to pray for others. You know, grant our brothers and sisters, China, Cuba, Asia, South America, wherever, Africa, that they would have their daily sustenance provided by you. You know, it's a necessary. But it, it conveys to us this very deep sense of need, our ongoing need of the Father's really abundant provision. But in his rule and his care, we find him very faithful. And I was just thinking also about um, Matthew chapter 10. You know, how much are sparrows worth? They're sold for a cent. But the Heavenly Father knows when one falls to the ground. How much more does he care for you? And it says he knows the number of hairs on your head. That We know our Heavenly Father is the supreme mathematician. That's not what he's talking about there. That shows such an intimacy that he knows you in the very numbers on your head. He knows exactly daily what is needed, what you truly need, and will provide for you faithfully. So Jesus continues on, give us this day our daily bread. And this does have the very real implication and meaning of daily sustenance. You know, oil, ground wheat, fine flour, mixed together, cooked bread, yes. But it also has a much broader implication and meaning here, too, that it's everything necessary for the preservation of life. And it's confined to that. It's not, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, you know, give us this day our new Jaguar so that we may cruise in style. You know, it's not about that. It's it's what Luther talked about when he said that, you know, the, this relates to really our health, our, our daily need of, of blessings, of weather that support your creation, Father, of, of clothing for our bodies, for our homes, our families, our government, all of those necessary for preservation of life. And it's it's this seeking and petitioning God here it is is what the Lord addresses later on in verses 25 to 34 of Matthew 6 about don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear. Your Father in heaven already knows these things. What does he say to seek first? What are we to seek first? The kingdom of God, his righteousness, yes. And the promise in that seeking All these things you need will be added to you. Take that to the bank. That's solid. That's not going to change. That's not going to waver. There's no need to worry in that. But as we depend on him and ask him, even for our daily necessities to preserve life, this is where we find both contentment and trust in him. We know that our Father will provide our needs. We can find great contentment. Paul had to learn this. We need to learn this. You know, that we should be very content with food to eat, clothing to wear, and and a covering over our heads. You know, that's it. So, he can provide it all. He will provide it all if we come to him in that hard attitude of, of humility and dependence upon him and petitioning him for that. Any thoughts? Comments. Yeah, I just wanted to say good morning, Bruce. Uh, my son has been playing around with a book. He's been busy 
Right. Amen. That's good. That's good. That's true. If you haven't read about George Mueller, read his book. I mean, talk about it. And, and he won't claim to be a man of faith. You know, he was a man of prayer, but he won't claim to be a man of faith. But. God's constant provision for him and the and those orphanages was incredible. Amazing. So I thought I had maybe a little bit diversion of but on the topic of like the daily bread and the God's gonna provide, just thinking about his total sovereignty and how what we do every day in our roles in life or jobs and stuff like that, that you know, he'll working working through us in that. And so when we talked about work several, you know, weeks ago yeah. in Second Thessalonians or or Colossians rather, um, just thinking like our attitude being submitted to God and working for God because even through our, our deeds and, and our you know um, you know actions and activities at work that he's using through us to provide for other families maybe that are your co-workers Amen. the actual product that you're producing and ultimately he's providing people who are praying this prayer at mm-hmm. times especially as we look at a global pandemic I'm, I'm glad you brought that out that's exactly right you know th- this is answered through our means of employment you know the skills and talents he's given us the opportunities and not just for ourselves, but to bless others, to bless the church and those that are in need. You know, amen. That's it. It, it It's so multifaceted. It's not just a piece of bread, you know. Yeah. It's all that preserves life and sustains life, not for us, but for beyond us. Okay. Verse 12, point two. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And this this fifth petition here for forgiveness is really very preeminent concern for our worship and our our theology, our knowing God. Okay, and I'm going to get into this pretty deep. As we see Matthew's use here of debts, of of excuse me. Ophelia mata is, is one of five Greek words that are used for sin, or particularly speaking of wrongdoing. It's our moral, our spiritual sin, our spiritual debt. It's, it's the massive obligation that we owe to God. And Luke, in his account, uses the word, it's very familiar, hamartia, for sin, which, which really means it implies missing the mark, missing the target of God's holiness. Both still sin, but but neither of these words are referring to any kind of financial debt. So there's not a financial matter here that Matthew's speaking about. But the debt we owe is one of perfect obedience, a debt that we cannot pay. And, And the reality is we've all failed at the very jot and tittle level of this obedience of God's perfect law of holiness. That that only the Lord God himself can remit for us. Um. It is very key also, I think, to note here that in our Lord's instruction to forgive our debts 
our sins against him, we see it qualified by the second half of of this instruction where he says, as we also have forgiven our debtors. What this means here is there's a reciprocal principle involved in this. And and stay the course with me here if you have questions as we get into this, because I know it's going to raise some. Stay with me because I'm going to hit all the points here. What this further means is reciprocal principle means that there's a very close parallel maintained between God's forgiveness to us and our forgiveness to others. Okay, I'm going to keep developing this. It's not the debts of others. It's related to the debtor, the one who has sinned against us. Both are involved, but the focus is on the debtor, the person who has sinned against us. And this is what brings out the very relational aspect of this petition and this instruction. Christ is saying there must be in our hearts, and this obviously only comes through his redeeming work, sanctifying work, but there must be within our hearts this attitude of forgiveness, this attitude of releasing another for any debt against us, no matter what it is, no matter what it is. And that's a very tough natural, <laughs> resistive inclination we have. It's like, well, wait a minute, what about? No, it, it includes anything that anybody would have done, to, can do to us or will do to us. Our example, Christ. This is why if a brother or sister in Christ should offend us, should sin against us, we don't look for retribution or vindication on our brother and sister. We look to Christ and say, what they did to me doesn't even weigh and matter compared to what Christ went through. I release you no matter what you did to me. Seventy times seven is what Jesus said, right? Your brother comes and sins against you, you forgive him. He comes again. You know, Peter, seven times, Lord? No. Seventy times seven. That, that there's no counting in that. It's continuous. Okay? So the question that this instruction, though, asks us is when we are daily praying to our Heavenly Father and whom we are to have the most intimate relationship with, Him fully knowing our life, our heart, our going out, our going in, Psalm 139, and as we're seeking through daily momentary confession of our own sins, do we aspire to and strive to walk in this forgiving attitude toward others? and seeking to to demonstrate that same Christ-like forgiveness that we've been shown. You know, one, one commentator had this great analogy. Do we open our hands to the Lord to receive his forgiveness, but we still have clenched fists when we remember those who've sinned against us? You know, are we unwilling to release them from their debt? Continue with me. If we seek to be forgiven by God, by, by God, the Father and the Son, who can only forgive a man his sins completely, and yet we are unwilling to forgive another and seek the help we need from the Father and the Spirit to walk in a forgiving manner. We, we truly are nothing but hypocrites. And we, we see this in Mark eleven twenty five, where he says, Christ says, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Okay? So if we ask for forgiveness from the Father, we must also be able to forgive people.
people, releasing them from any indebtedness, any sin, any injury against us from the heart, not merely lip service, but from the heart. And this petition is the only clause in all of this intercessory instruction from Christ that has a qualification. And we see this later on in verses 14 and 15, where it says, If you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your, heaven, your Father will not forgive your transgressions. And this, this qualifying statement means that when we fail to do what we should, when we sin against God, and we owe God a great debt and are in need of great help, namely the cancellation of a debt towards him that we cannot repay. But having this forgiving heart demonstrates really the core of Christ's mission here on earth was the forgiveness of sins. And, and seeing the same attitude expressed in the lives of his disciples will show a truly transformed heart that's brought about by God's kingdom rule and his will being carried out in our lives. Chrysostom, one of the early church fathers, said this about our praying to... I'm sorry, I got ahead of that. Out of, sec, out of sync there, sorry. <laughs> Let me go ahead. Two very powerful aspects of this instruction as it relates to our salvation and sanctification are, are, are this, what we have to consider. This is where it gets a little deep, so bear with me. If the forgiveness of our sins, which is, of course, achieved through the saving death of Christ, is not matched in our lives by an appropriate forgiving attitude, it cannot be presumed upon. Okay, think of the parable in Matthew eighteen twenty three to 35, where the master over one slave forgives us. Remember, Brother Brian's Sunday school about this enormous debt that was completely impossible to be repaid. Yet this same slave went out, and he could not forgive his fellow slave of a reasonable debt. What happens to the former slave? Was he forgiven? No. I mean, Scripture is very clear. Said, and his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Meaning, our failure to forgive closes the door to this ongoing forgiveness to us. It's not that our forgiveness from the Father is contingent upon our forgiving another, okay? Being forgiven by the Father through Christ is not contingent upon our forgiving another. But if we are a child and a disciple of Christ who understands and understands the comprehends the vastness of Christ's mercy and God's mercy to us, we should have and strive for more of this hard attitude of walking in forgiveness toward others. Does that make sense? Follow me, Claire? Okay. But let me ask this. What is the breadth of the forgiveness that we are expected to forgive? This is where it's very hard for our human nature to to comprehend this, but that parable, unsurmountable debt owed against us or sin against us or injury against us, doesn't matter. Okay? Okay. 
no offense we may suffer from another can ever get close to, to the weight of sin we've already committed against God and been forgiven through by the blood of Christ. This is the, the 70 by 7. You know, there's no measurement to it. Think for a moment about the woman in Luke 7 who was forgiven much, how much she loved Christ. She broke the vessel of perfume. She washed his feet with her tears, dried them with her hair. And the rebuke that Christ gave to the Pharisee, I've been here and you haven't even kissed me. You haven't even washed my feet. Yet this woman, since I've been here, hasn't stopped weeping and and washing my feet and drying them with her hair. She loves much because she's been forgiven much. That should be our love toward one another. Brothers and sisters and our enemies, you know, even if some terrorist walked in here, we're to show that. Yes, brother. Enemies, everybody. Right. Not for us now. God will vindicate. He will bring the final judgment. That's what we rest in. That no matter what happens to us, that final vindication, God says, don't seek retribution on your own. Vengeance is his. You know, leave it to him. Though he slay me, yet I will praise him. And, and leave it in his hands. That, that should be our attitude. If we are, if, if we are in Christ, <laughs> if we're not, our human nature takes over. Yeah, we're going to go after him with everything we got. But in Christ, one cheek, turn the other. Amen. Right. Where it talks about bringing our offering and then remembering that you know, either somebody has something against you or you have something against somebody else, like to go and be reconciled. Right. Um, but if you're harboring, like, you know, a lack of, like, you know, a reconciliation mindset. Right. Any resentment. In many ways, it's, man, it's really challenging to have any meaningful communion. Amen. And that's, that's exactly right. That's why I was getting across about, you know, our failure to forgive closes the door to that ongoing forgiveness, that communion, that relationship that you hold on to that, it's just going to grow a, a root of bitterness in you and hinder your, your intimacy with the Father. Amen. Yep. Any other questions, comments? We're doing pretty good. Yes. Right. So, 
say some people are lovable enough and the world does that. Yeah. And they're not like me because the world does that or I don't get along. We're not, we don't have like personalities. The world does that. Right. And the other key that goes with that, that's right, the other key that goes with that is, you know, if we do something sinful and somebody gets retribution on us, that's different. That doesn't mean we can go after them, but when we've sinned and brought, brought you know, judgment or, or some retaliation against us, we've got a lot of confessing and, and repentance. And like Brian was talking about, we need to go get forgiveness <laughs> from that brother or even from the enemy to humble ourselves to that extent. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Festers, yeah. Right. Yep. Amen. Confess it, release it, restore whatever is necessary. Amen. So thankfully, and, and really... Notably, the Lord instructs us immediately after this petition for forgiveness of past sins and to be like him in forgiving others that he now instructs us to protect us from future sin and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I've included here actually what goes into the Greek is there is a personal reference here so that in your margins it may say from the evil one, that is referring to Satan. That is referring to his minions that are out there. But this petition forms really the climax of all these petitions for us as it, it addresses directly the evil that we all face. You know, that same issue that's been from the beginning. <coughs> evil is, is truly the absence of, of justice. It's the absence of sanctification of the holy and hallowed name of God. It's the absence of God's kingdom work of redemption. It's utter disobedience of God's will. And so the outcome, the resulting of all this is evil. And and looking at this petition, these these two sections within it, it carries a, a very closely related theme here. The second one actually expands, the second part actually expands the first. And we look at the second part first. Um, as I said, your Bibles may have in the margin the evil one, which is a better rendering, because from a, both a pure literary perspective and, and other scriptures in the Greek, specifically Matthew 4, 1 to 11, and also looking the, at the same pattern of usage in the Greek and the scriptures, we see this, this is ha- having a personal reference here. One is speaking of the evil one. So this deliver us, a request of the Lord's help, of his delivering power from the tempter himself. And it's referring to all those spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realm, what, what Paul talks about in Ephesians 6.12. You know, Satan, his forces, his realm that we face each day. And, and the big question that comes out of this first section is the notion of of God's bringing us into temptation, and how is this compatible with his goodness? This is what we call theodicy, and I'm not going to go down that trail. We can discuss that offline, but I will address this. And, and this, this reasoning involves two mistakes. 
First section, there's, there's a negative request in this petition. Do not lead us into temptation. But it doesn't imply that the positive is to be otherwise expected. Okay, what I mean is an example. If a husband should say to his wife, please don't ever leave me, he's not assuming that she's likely to do that. Okay? But the question to ask when, when considering this petition taught by Christ is, what is the, the meaning of that Greek word for temptation, perasmon? Temptation or, or simply a time of testing. And in the Greek, perasmos or perasmon is not itself to be understood as a bad thing. It's neutral in the Greek. It's a neutral word, okay? Temptation is not sin, right? Everybody's clear on that? We're, we're, we sin when we're tempted and drawn away by our lust to commit a sin, all right? But the root of the word has to do with testing or proving. And, and when we consider it as, as it is being used in light of the evil one and also in the satanic testing of our Lord, which we saw in Matthew 4, and for any of us, this view is to their failing the test, and in these cases it means temptation. So when it's referring to the evil one, Satan's only intention is to see you fail. He's going to tempt you into sin, okay? So what is in mind here? What is Christ conveying in, the, in this petition that we are to pray? And, and I looked at this and, and confirmed with other theologians much smarter and greater than I am. But the key here is, is with the word not. Lead us not into temptation, okay? But lead us away from it to righteousness. That's what's being implied here. It's to help us to see our own weakness and, and our own propensity to wander, and even more dangerous, to even approach the precipice of temptation. And it should not be in our petitions. You know, if, if we, we being a genuine pursuit of growing in godliness and holiness, what we would seek to be kept away from anything that causes us to be tempted, not just the ultimate sin, but anything that would bring about a temptation in our lives, it would result in the evil one having victory over us. Does that make sense? Follow that? Okay. And the Lord uses here very strong adversative here intentionally with the word but. This is to say, rather, our Father lead us in a course of action that leads to righteousness. 1 Corinthians 10.13, show us that path, that preserving path of life, that way of escape that he provides us, when that any opportunity to be drawn away, to be tempted, to, to go into sin. Get our focus on your face, on your righteousness, on your holiness, on your word. This is a promise, a very powerful promise for us that Christ has given us. But briefly, looking back to the evil one, almost done here. We need to daily realize we do have a very wicked adversary who's out to, just like Peter, sift his faith, faith like wheat, to sift him like wheat, to destroy our faith, to delude us, to, to discourage us. But we need to pray in such a way that the Lord, in his sovereign power and provision, will provide that way of escape, will keep us from, from those things that would bring about an opportunity to even be tempted. You know, Owen talks about this a lot in his book about starving those areas that would bring any opportunity 
for us to be drawn away, no matter what they may be. Apps on your phone, food in the refrigerator, you know, aspiring to a a very rich lifestyle, whatever it is, what would draw us into an area of temptation that the enemy would use to destroy us. But if we confess our own inadequacy in our flesh and and all the human resources that we have to deal with um, and confess and request this, this need of protection, and deliverance that we can receive from our sovereign and, and wonderful Heavenly Father. So this all, if you can see in the, all these petitions, especially these three today and our personal needs, it all refers back to our Father in Heaven, our, our Heavenly Father who is, who is holy and hallowed. And this is what we see in the closing doxology here. It's not in the original text. It was added later, but it's a worthy doxology. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That is our desire and intention and focus in, the, in this prayer that Christ has given us. That in all matters of life, in his provision, in his enabling us to have a forgiving heart and attitude no matter what is done against us, and to be delivered from temptation, from the attempts of the enemy to, to cause us to sin, but rather to know him, to seek him, to be focused on him each and every day. Any thoughts? Any questions? Let's go worship.